Well, thank you all very much for coming along to this um, LSE Works and LSE Public Policy Group event. Um, we've got a, a really interesting uh, se section of uh, speakers here this evening, and um, I'm going to very quickly hand over, but I just wanted to let you know that there will be a, a drinks reception after the event tonight if you want to keep talking about some of the ideas that you've heard here. It's actually um, in the main building, um, which is sort of around the corner. There'll be lots of people around to direct you over, but I want, just wanted to encourage you all to stay and have a... Sorry? It's not. No, it's in, the, in a room called the Atrium, which is on the ground floor of the main building. But there'll be lots of people about to, to direct you. Um, and they're also, uh, you can buy copies of the book outside, and I'm sure Patrick and Leandro would be happy to sign a copy for you if, if that's what you'd like. But um, uh, without further ado, I'll hand over to our chair, Diane Coyle. Thank you, Jane. Yes, my name's Diane Coyle. I'm an economist, and I've spent my career with a foot in both the private and the public sector, so found this a really interesting book. Um, the format this evening is that Patrick Dunleavy is going to speak about the book for 15 minutes or so, and then we've got a comment from our distinguished panel, who are uh, Barry Quirk, Chief Executive of Lewisham Council, Joe Grice, Chief Economist at the Office of National Statistics, and Edwin Lau, who heads the OECD's Public Sector Directorate. And then after that, we'll um, turn for, to you for your comments and questions. Um, so, Patrick, over to you. Okay. So, um, I'm going to just uh, <laughs> present a few slides from the uh, book. And Leandro Carrera is sitting over here. He, as you probably will all know, is the technical guru behind the book. And, uh, so, if uh, anybody has really techie questions, I'll refer them immediately to Leandro. This is a, a book that was uh, funded, actually, by a, a donation from a, um, a, a very large uh, private company, uh, which is now uh, HP, the computer company. And uh, it's good to see James John sitting in the audience here from HP. And it was also developed uh, over a long period of time that we were doing a lot of work for the National Audit Office. So I just wanted to thank them as well, because there's a lot of material that we learned while we were doing stuff for the National Order. So this is the book that you've probably all seen already, so I'll skip over that. Government sector productivity has been a, a, around as a, a, as a concept for a long time, but it hasn't actually really been very much measured. Productivity just, at its simplest, would mean outputs divided by inputs. And in the past, measuring outputs, getting to an overall measure of outputs in the problem public sector has been quite tricky to do. And for a long time, we didn't do it. So we would just count public sector inputs, costs or staff or whatever. And then we would imagine that public sector outputs were the same as the inputs. And then we would enter that into the national statistics and divide the inputs by the inputs, which actually is uh, equivalent to assuming that government sector productivity is always one. It's always flat. And the various very good reasons why that uh, position was maintained for a long time, even though everybody knew that it, it wasn't uh, strictly correct. But since the Atkinson report in 2005, we've, we've made a lot of progress in the idea of how we can get to an overall measure of outputs. And essentially what we do is we look at the administrative costs and weight the mix of outputs that an agency is doing by its administrative costs. So... Uh, productivity is 
best measured if you've got lots of agencies doing the same thing. Um, but uh, the agencies where you have very decentralized provision are usually doing uh, services which require a lot of uh, personal delivery or decentralized professional delivery. And actually in these services, quality of service is very, very important. So although we've had a lot of studies of productivity at the decentralized level, they haven't usually got into controlling appropriately for quality of service. So <clears throat> it's possible that you can have very perverse productivity signals in these decentralized studies. So neither at the national government level nor at the decentralized level have we made as much progress as we would like. I'm going to mainly just talk about the national government level. I'm just going to show you a few pictures of uh, productivity in three agencies, the UK Customs, the uh, Tax Collection Agency, which is now the Majesty Revenue and Customs, and the Department of Social Security. And the first uh, thing to say about these departments is they're unique. They, there's a, most governments have only one of these departments. So there's not, nobody else to compare them with, and you can't easily do comparative studies. If we had excellent comparative data on productivity, we would be able to compare, let's say, the British Tax Agency and the American and, and so on. But uh, sadly, we have very poor international data on public sector productivity. Um, and we've also had a lot of pushback by civil servants and governments who have always tended to say, well, we're very sui generis, you can't evaluate us using just uh, productivity uh, based alone. So what we've done really in the first part of the book um, is to focus on uh, particular agencies or departments. And uh, government agencies exist for a long time. There's a body of work in the academic literature that says perhaps they're even immortal. Uh, they, you know, we have agencies that date back to the 13th century in the UK. Uh, we've focused on fairly standard operations, fairly standard administrative operations, and we've just really tried to look for, is there a quality problem? You know, has, has the agency stopped doing something or really degraded the quality of what it's doing? If not, we're going to assume that it's broadly standard quality. And we might, you might ask me questions about that. And then we're focusing particularly on organizations. So we've had a lot of national statistics data that are about very large sectors, like the whole of the healthcare sector or the whole of the education sector whatever. But our focus is particularly on organizational productivity, which is a story that we think is most relevant for organizational managers. So here's uh, a graph for the UK customs across this decade. Um, and the, in all of the graphs I'm going to show you, I'll whiz quickly through them. The pink uh, graph line shows you the volume of inputs as an index number. And the uh, blue line shows you the volume of outputs. And the green line shows you the uh, overall productivity, which is the outputs divided by the inputs. Now, this story for customs is um, a story of very rapid productivity growth that was sustained for a long period of time. And it was mainly achieved by bringing, well, by two things, really. Bringing in a computer system to track imports and exports, which is what we're looking at here, and then also changing the way in which they did their, modernizing the way in which they did their administration, 
moving from sort of randomly opening up containers in the hope of detecting things going wrong to very much intelligence-based, risk-based assessment. The interesting thing about this graph really is that you can have very substantial growth in organizational productivity in the public sector. Essentially here, the, you know, the volume of inputs was pretty static throughout the decade, whereas the volume of trade that was being handled went up, and you had a, a very uh, substantial increase in productivity. If we look at uh, tax collection, again, the pink is inputs, the blue is outputs, and the the green is productivity, you can see that actually it was pretty flat for a very long period of time. It bobbled around a bit, but it didn't really grow until there was a a major, well, two major major things happened. The first was that that, uh, our tax and our customs agencies were uh, amalgamated in 2005, and there were quite a lot of synergies uh, that developed from that. And the second thing is that after a rather slow start... Uh, in and revenue and later Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs started to make you know, substantial savings from the use of uh, online tax forms. Uh, now we're up to about four out of five people submitting their self-assessment income tax forms online. Yes, certainly. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, so that's uh, the tax thing. We can look at this in another way. Uh, which is uh, just looking at by the amount of tax collected. And again, we don't see a huge... uh, It's rather flat for a long period, but we do see a growth right at the end. Um, If we look at Social Security uh, in Britain, the story is rather depressing. Uh, During the Blair years, there was a big reorganisation of the uh, Social Security Department, and uh, productivity fell hugely during this reorganization period because the number of staff went up, but the volume of cases basically stayed the same. After a while, the, the management got more, uh, got more out of the uh, new procedures and the new reforms and the new benefits that had been introduced, but there was a very substantial slump, and really at the end of the period... Uh, they, the, it's very hard to see the DWP productivity as being better than it was at the beginning. And in fact, we've done a, a slightly flakier, long-run effort to track the DWP and the Social Security function in the UK. And over 20 years, which is a long time in the history of the world, uh, really productivity was pretty flat. There were two big dips. There was a bit when it came back. But it hasn't really improved. So certainly this is a different picture from the one we saw with, with customs. And one of the problems that DWP had is that they made a strategic misdecision in the early 2000s. They decided to remodel their whole um, administrative systems from being very much based on sending things in on paper forms in the mail to basing them around a phone-based system. And this is uh, what happened. You can see that they had a huge explosive growth of phones by about 2005. Three years later, they managed to get the number of rather pointless phone calls down uh, in a huge management uh, uh, effort 
which actually pushed up the amount of stuff that was coming in by post. And uh, they also cut down the amount of face-to-face communication, which saved a lot of money. But there's one missing thing here, which is that the proportion of services that was done online hadn't shifted at all. When we did a report for the National Audit Office, David Darrett is sitting here, we showed that half of 1% of their customer transactions were online in the same year as 74% of self-assessment income tax forms were coming in online, and in the same year when over half of the DWP uh, customers were themselves online with broadband internet access. So sometimes you can make very bad decisions and you can just miss what's going to be happening. Now the DWP has a completely different approach, and they have a target of achieving 80% of their customer transactions online by 2015 which I would predict they're not going to make, but uh, we'll see. So those are the pictures across the agencies. I just want to round up with trying to think about what are the key factors that we observe. Now, I'm just going to show you three pictures which uh, reflect our uh, long-running effort to try and create some meaningful data from the the, the, the government uh, statistics that are, are available. And just to, to focus on three things. The first thing is, well, does spending a lot of money on ICT, on communication technology and IT, does it increase government productivity? And the answer is that there is a reasonable association. You can see that the, uh, there's a bit of scatter, so it's not marvelous, but the uh, maybe 45% of the of the uh, variation might be explained by this. Now, that's just one graph. Um, we also looked at another factor, which was the, the overall managerial reorganization of things. And one of the, the, the difficulties that we have is trying to identify when managerial reorganization has occurred. So the index that we use is the amount of money spent on, non, uh, on PFI spending that's really basically construction. When you do new buildings, you tend to reorganize your production processes. You can see that in in HMRC and DWP very very strongly. So here we look to see, you know, is there a link between, a lagged link between spending on new buildings, which usually entails reorganizing what you're doing, and then productivity going up. And on the whole, it's not a bad uh, association. There's some strange... Uh, data points that we're, uh, we're a bit unhappy about, but uh, there's some impact. And then the final thing we looked at was, well, does spending a lot of money on consultancy help you increase your productivity? And the answer is no. It doesn't do any good at all. Uh, so let me just round up by saying, at the end of the book, we try to set out some key steps to achieving sustainable public sector productivity growth. And the first step is you've got to focus on productivity. If you just say the word but don't focus on it, don't collect the statistics, don't look at it really, really hard, don't give it priority, and don't come back to it every year and try to get better, you're not going to get better. That's the first thing. And it's strange to me that the National Audit Office, for example, never publishes anything on government sector productivity. I think they should, but they don't. And it's strange to me that uh, we've had governments of left and right, and they've been very variable on whether they've 
consistently pursued higher productivity. Secondly, inside the public sector, innovation is very important. Edwin and I were just discussing before the talk with a group of students who are doing some research for OECD the you know, tremendous importance of public sector innovation. In a private industry, half of the productivity growth that happens in, let's say, a 10-year period will be because less efficient firms close down and custom transfers to more efficient firms. Now, you can try and do things inside the public sector to replicate that effect, but it, they're very, very weak and they're very partial and they don't usually uh, endure. The enduring thing that really affects public sector productivity is internal innovation in public sector agencies. So my rule of thumb is it's twice as important as it is in a private sector. Thirdly, you need to engage public sector workers. Innovation is something that really relies a lot on detailed, serial efforts by people who really know what they're doing, really know what's happening on the, the grassroots. You can only get that if you create the appropriate kind of public trust. And people who are running these agencies see that things are going to get better if they reveal information to management. If they reveal information to management, then the managers say, oh, thanks very nicely, we'll fire some of you, then you know, you're not going to get sustainable innovation. Fourthly, you need to think about this demand transfer across suppliers. It's very hard to do, but it could be if it's genuine. So you don't want to do the kind of thing the British government has done in IT, which is create a hugely oligopolistic market with a few main contractors who basically don't compete very uh, strongly. Uh, that doesn't really give you succession or transfer across suppliers. So you need to think of a more mixed economy kind of way of doing things that creates intra-governmental competition, brings in third sector organizations, and so on. All of that might have more impact in, in genuine uh, supplier demand transfers. And finally, sad to say, but true, the old standard social democratic faith that having a big government is going to be a pathway to social equality does not work if you have a low productivity public sector in a high productivity uh, country. That the evidence is, is pretty strong that that does not reduce social equality. And so the appropriate way of creating social equality is not to have a sort of large, padded, not very good public sector, but to have an efficient, uh, high-performing public sector with, with strong wages for the workforce in the public sector that then helps maximize economic growth and uh, national wealth and creates more of a basis from which you can have an efficient welfare state redistribution. So there's some points in here that people on the right will find not very congenial, and some points that people on the left will find not very congenial. But actually, we really need to think about this as a long-run problem and set in place the right ways of tackling Thanks very much. Thanks, Patrick. <clears throat>
how we can improve. And um, uh, I spend time essentially uh, looking at theory, looking at practice, and encouraging uh, my organization to be as innovative as possible. Um, when I'm searching around for theory, I look at books. I can't find any that actually gives about management economics for, an organi for organizations. I can't find hardly any that, that are relevant and useful for the public sector. Um, there's a lot, particularly on, because of the, if it's about government or, or the public sector, that actually rests on policy analysis or believes that uh, innovation comes from political challenge and insurgency and new policy initiatives. But there's very little that actually talks about where innovation and where change uh, happens, which is in organizations. So I actually was delighted to read uh, the book because it focuses on organizations. And actually, I thought it was... It blended with my personal history because for six years I actually was a non-exec director on both customs and then rev revenue and uh, HMRC. So I, I sort of read through the tax pits quite um, avidly as well. And I do think it's unusual to find something that is useful to practitioners because it's focused on organization. There's far too much that's produced, which is really policy uh, initiative after policy initiative, or looking at systems. And when you're trying to um, make something productive, it's either a class or a school or a school system. It's either a team of people working in something, or it's the assets that you've got, or it's the whole organization, or it's the system. And there's too much analysis, for my liking, on systems and on national policies, and not enough on how can we make organizations work. So I, I think this was absolutely hit the nail on the head that the book um, uh, uh, achieved. I also think that um, uh, I liked in particular the section about digital era of governance and productivity and the connection um, that we're now seeing between productivity improvement and investment in IT, although that was um, for many years not considered to be... Uh, um, following uh, Bridge Olsen's work and so on, considered not to be a, um, an evidenced route. It now looks reasonably so from your 45%, I noticed. Um, so I really like that section, but I particularly love the section, the general focus on organizational learning, um, and particularly on how organizations can learn. I'd suggest that you look at the 24 generic suggestions on table 10.1 at the back. Uh, which is quite a useful thing about how organizations can learn and improve. Essentially, managing uh, organizations is about empowered, measured risk-taking for all, of the, all the people in the organization. I'm leading an organization managerially that takes people's, some people's children into care, and it also collects their rubbish. But it doesn't do it on the same round. Now, we have specialties, and it's about how you empower and measure and enable people to take measured risks in each of these specialties, not applying the same approach to every area. Um, so I think it's absolutely crucial um, that we have an organizational focus. I thought, actually, at last I found a book that, doesn't, that addresses these issues but doesn't look at local government. That's good. Actually, at last it doesn't mention libraries, because I've had three years of dealing with libraries, 
Um, but actually, on page 324, just two pages before the end, there's a whole page on libraries, and I thought, oh, no. Um, so I congratulate Leandro and Patrick on producing what is, I think, a very important and insightful book. Um, my views on the subject that they raise um, are really that there is a danger in the commentary about the new public management, which says that new public management is unsuccessful. New public management has failed. The danger in that commentary is that actually it promotes a sort of fatalism, that there's nothing that you can do and that it's happenstance or it's just random. Um, now, I, I studied um, uh, many years ago educational performance and before, in the 1970s and 1980s, it was commonplace that people felt that all you needed to do was analyse the inputs to uh, a school and the inputs to a school are the pupils. And if you study the inputs, you'll be able to predict the outputs. And it wasn't until 1982 when Michael Rutter wrote a book called 15,000 Hours, and the book was actually about secondary schools matter. And there is variation in the performance of schools, and this variation is something to do with the abilities of the leadership of the school and the teaching in the school and the quality of teaching in the school. Now, we've now come to a position 30 years later where we seem to believe that schools are the only thing that matters. I think we've gone too far. Um, it's, it is a mixture of um, the socioeconomic circumstances of the people that go to the school and a mixture of the abilities of the leadership and management of the school. But to believe that it's not a function, that outputs and social results and education attainment is nothing to do with the leadership of the school would, be, would lead, I think, it's almost unorthodox now. And I think if you apply that logic to prisons, to councils, to hospitals, to all organisations, you'd say, actually you need meliorists, people who are not optimists that believe that things are going to work out well, or pessimists that believe the past was better, but people that actually want to make things better in the management of their organisation, whether that's a school or a council or a hospital or a prison or whatever. And I think focusing attention on what is it that makes organisations productive, looking at cost weighting, looking at the, um, taking account of quality is absolutely crucial. Because the agenda, I think, for people that are managing organisations now in the public sector is about cost reduction, productivity improvement and demand and supply management. And I think that what the book does is it raises these issues and it's, a, above all, a useful book. What matters to me isn't that we're productive, but we're productive with purpose. We're purposefully productive. I actually looked at the top three books that were read in our libraries. I asked the li chief librarian on my way here today, I said, what are the most three books that were read? Because there's lots of stuff about the productivity of libraries. I could talk to you about productivity by square meterage or by... Um, number of librarians over time and compared to the community libraries as opposed to the council-owned libraries. But the top read book, what do you think? It's not Hilary Mantel, actually. She's second. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey is third. Um, uh, it's actually a book for teenagers on sex because it's a big deal in South London, sex. Um, and, and the top read non-fiction non-fiction book is a book about pubs in South London. <laughs> so the question is, what are the purpose of libraries? 
not just what's their productivity. And I think that's the case of all of our services. What's the purpose of it? How can we repurpose it as well as improve its productivity? So, again, I'd like to congratulate Leandro and Patrick on what is a very thoughtful and useful book. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. We'll move up the geographic scale and ask Joe to comment next. Well, thank you very much. This is a, um, a subject which is very close to my heart. Uh, having spent most of my career in the Treasury, uh, I spent a very um, happy and, um, um, uh, I thought, useful year, actually, uh, working with the uh, team that Sir Tony Atkinson assembled back in 2004, the Atkinson Review that Patrick's already talked about, uh, which was, com was commissioned to look at how would we measure public service output. Um, and um, Tony being Tony made uh, really quite a big... Uh, big inroad into that. I'd like to uh, deal with three issues, really, in, in the time available to me. Uh, the one is to say a bit about why this subject is important, what it is that makes it really quite central to political as well as social uh, debate. I'd secondly like to take up one of the challenges in the introduction to the book. Why has this subject not received far more attention? Why has it uh, uh, been relatively neglected? And then thirdly, just to say a bit about um, the use uh, that this framework uh, gives rise to uh, and um, uh, really to express um, enormous admiration, actually, as to the progress that's been made. Now, the first of those, why is this an important topic? It seems to me, first and foremost, public services are something which people value enormously. They value the health service, they value schools, uh, they even, to a degree, I expect, value um, uh, tax collection, though maybe not quite in the same way. Um, but those services that people receive from the states are ones which they regard as very important. Uh, and actually, maybe uh, peaking in around about 2001, uh, when overall the economy seemed to be going pretty well, uh, other things seemed to be going not too badly, but actually huge discontent with the public services people felt they were uh, receiving at that stage. Public service is really at the heart of the 2001 uh, general election. Uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown came back from that election uh, victorious, but very much seized of the importance of this issue. Indeed, in some ways, productivity is at the centre of this, because if people have continuing rising expectations from the public services they receive, but actually at the same time, they do not have the same rising appetite to go on paying taxes then the only way that governments can square that circle in political economy terms is to ensure that those services provided are provided more for the same or indeed more in some cases for less. In other words, higher productivity, right at the centre of that debate. And even if people didn't care about public services, they would, one imagines, care about their taxes. Government takes nearly 40% of national income by way of taxes not surprisingly, people care about the stewardship of that money. Is it being used to good effect? Can they feel good about their taxes because it's producing high-quality health care? Or do they feel actually those taxes are being wasted, at least in part? 
stewardship of taxes, I think, is important and central to the political debate as well. And then thirdly, easy to overlook, but public services account for 22% of the economy, 22% of GDP. That's about twice the size of manufacturing. It's now slightly larger than twice the size of manufacturing in total. So this is a big part of the economy. Uh, curious enough, actually, I think the book refers at one point to public services being 11% of the economy. I think that's probably a mistake, but whatever. It simply makes the point the books make, I think, twice as, twice as powerfully. So, there's no, anyway, we, that's not to the point. Um, <coughs> what matters, though, is that if governments are interested in growth overall, they're interested in the economy overall, then they need to be interested in the public services, no less than they are interested in manufacturing or the production sector, all those areas where traditionally government has um, uh, uh, opined, produced policies, uh, uh, lectured uh, private sector entrepreneurs. You might think that they would have a particular duty uh, in those areas where they have rather more direct responsibility and control for the productive outcome of those enterprises for which they're responsible. And this is more, I think, this is, I think, both relevant in terms of measurement and policy. Um, if you want growth in the economy, you need to know how to measure growth in the sector and you need to know how to produce it. Now, the second point, why has this been a neglected subject? Part of the issue, I think, is actually that it's inherently not straightforward. In fact, in some ways, it's quite difficult. I very much take Patrick's point uh, that this is not just about making vague generalizations. We actually need some metrics, some facts, uh, some basis to be able to, uh, to work, to analyze, and, and take forward. But actually, measuring productivity in these non, principally non-market sectors is not straightforward. On the whole, it's relatively straightforward to get the quantities. You know how many people are being treated by the health service. You know how many... Um, uh, children are being uh, uh, taken through the school system. More difficult to know what is the quality of the health care that those uh, people are receiving, those patients in the health service, uh, how much value added is really being added to those children being taken through, uh, through school. Um, now, you ignore that at its peril. It used to be the case, I think, right up until about 1990, that the Department of Health's main measure for the output of the health service was called deaths and discharges. So either you went as a patient, you were discharged and cured, it was one unit, or you went through the health service and you died, that was still the same unit. <laughs> that always seems to me to be kind of the ultimate quality, quality adjustment. But we did ignore quality at our peril, but it's not straightforward to measure. Having said it's not straightforward, it's not impossible either. Uh, a lot of people have worked for a number of years, economists and other practitioners, in working out what is the quality of the health service. Ditto, what is the quality of the education service? Barry's point, again, that you ignore these issues at your peril. They're not completely intractable, even if they're not straightforward. And I think one of the things that the Atkinson Review probably uh, did was to suggest and insert the idea that a principled, a theoretical approach to quality was needed. If you just went around and chased kind of random, uh, likely-looking variables, you could actually do uh, more harm than good, unless there was some really well-justified basis for using those, those variables. 
And I think the other reason that this is a neglected subject is it's sort of gone politically out of fashion. You no longer get this being right at the heart of political debate as it was in 2001. And why not? Well, I think, at least in the UK, the answer in part is that governments were able, for a while, to meet those rising expectations for better public services simply by pouring money into those services. Uh, Gordon Brown's prudence for a purpose, uh, perfectly respectable in its own terms, but clearly that uh, ability to generate output of public services simply by increasing the resources available if it was available for a time to Mr. Brown, is not available to Mr. Osborne. So returning to an environment where improvements are generated by productivity, not by pouring further resources into public services, seems to me we're right up against that as of now. And equally, given the uh, apparent uh, reluctance of our economy to grow uh, for now three or four years, not surprisingly, the Treasury, BIS, various other departments are looking at precisely that issue about shouldn't we actually be looking at productivity in our own direct sector as well as in the rest of the economy. Maybe that's part of where the malaise is. Final point, um, the use of the framework. What I really liked about this is it's not just a question of how do you measure, how do you produce nice metrics and so on. That's a, an essential, in my view, part of the agenda. But actually what the book shows really very nicely um, is what use you can then make of this in order to produce an agenda, uh, recommendations for what can be done to improve productivity, not just to measure it, but actually to improve it. Uh, Patrick uh, outlined some of the, the messages that come out of the book on that. Uh, what I particularly like, actually, is the fact that even if we don't have comparative information uh, of huge volume about international comparisons, we do now increasingly have reliable and useful information about the performance of, for example, separate hospital trusts or separate schools, uh, uh, even, I expect, separate libraries. Uh, and correcting for quality, uh, reliably based information, that seems to me to be increasingly useful. If we can only level up to the top quartile or whatever, what a huge overall improvement we would uh, see in the aggregate outturns. All of this seems to me uh, to suggest that even if this has been a neglected topic in the past, it isn't going to be much longer. And what seems to me to be extraordinarily well-timed in this uh, book uh, that we're talking about this evening is that it does produce uh, the concepts, the techniques, the metrics, and the tools to make a key contribution to what I think are about to be returning to the center of political debate in the UK, at least, uh, for some time to come. So extraordinarily well-timed, extraordinarily useful, and actually, I think, really uh, repairing that neglect in this area which the introduction to the book quite properly uh, draws to our attention. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. Is there a comment from Edwin on the international perspective? Well, first of all, I'd like to join the other speakers in the accolades for the book because I appreciated it very much. First of all, simply because it was very readable. And I think that oftentimes when that's not a given with a book on public sector uh, productivity. <laughs> Uh, secondly, however, I think that, uh, as Joe, as our previous speaker just mentioned, it 
brings the attention squarely back onto efficiency. And I think that that's quite important. And over the last couple of years, I've noticed, at least in public management circles, this trend to say, it's not about efficiency, it's about effectiveness. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're focused on efficiency, you know, you are sort of the bean counters and you're missing the big picture. And so effectiveness and outcomes, that's really what we're about. And in a way, that allowed people to get off the hook uh, and to be able to focus on these fuzzier issues that they didn't have to measure. And secondly, it also um, allowed people to think about, you know, more strategic issues. Yet at the same time, it cut the link between uh, the delivery and the productivity of organizations and their ability to focus on strategy and, and on the issues that, that they're designed or, or have a mandate to, uh, to produce. So I think that the issue or what the takeaway that I had from the book is that efficiency creates the fiscal space for organizations to focus on their priority areas. And so therefore, it's not one or the other effectiveness or efficiency, but both together. And then the third thing that I liked about the book very much, uh, which Joe also mentioned, is that not only did it provide us with a framework, but also with some solutions. And, and I'll get back into that in a, in a second. Uh, so there were very many things that I liked about the book and could talk about, but I'll just focus on three. The first is on the data issue. The second is on the incentives for, for innovation and for improving productivity. And the third on, on public sector innovation. So with regard to data, you know, very early on in the book, uh, Patrick threw down a gauntlet for, for me as the OECD, saying that uh, there's kind of a missed opportunity in terms of comparative uh, information on productivity across countries. And, and that's true. I think that uh, public uh, multilateral organizations are ready to lead the charge in terms of collecting information on productivity, but only if countries are willing to follow. And about 10 years ago, I was working on, on e-government issues and uh, got together countries to try to collect information on ICT expenditure. And I, I'm happy to say that the UK was one of those countries that was willing to provide us with the information and was quite eager to join in in this activity. But it was only one of a handful of countries. And I think that without... Uh, there were some countries, for example, many of the Nordic countries would say, well, you know, it's not our job to collect this information. It's all happening at the local level. Other countries were saying, well, you know, why, why are we collecting this? This is not, we don't own the data, and so we, therefore we do not have the, the ability to, uh, to, to, to uh, consolidate all of this data across government. So we're getting many of these excuses, but at the same time also, I think, just a lack of understanding of why we should be collecting this information. So then in 2010, so nine years later, that was when we were actually able to get our first collection of ICT uh, expenditure across governments. And so therefore, to start to look at some of these issues that, um, that Patrick has, has, has addressed in terms of, for example, the, the ICT contribution to uh, total factor productivity. Um, but I think it also shows that there are some countries which maybe in their culture or their administrative legacy uh, have a more openness to looking at issues such as productivity or looking at value for money. And I think, well, I may be generalizing a little bit, that within the Anglo-Saxon world and in the Commonwealth countries, there is a greater willingness to take that approach, and that in many other OECD countries, that is only just now starting to develop. So we're still in early days in order, in terms of being able to, to collect and compare that type of information. My second point with regard to the data is that there is a huge gap between national accounts and organizational data. And I think that 
the book really shows that it's at the organizational level where you're going to be able to tell some interesting stories that are going to draw conclusions for managers to manage by. And that if you only look at the national accounts, it's, it's quite complex. I mean, in one way, you're focusing on organizations with relatively simple, and I say that in, in quotation marks, uh, uh, mandates with easily measurable uh, outputs. And so once you start looking at you know, what is the output of, say, diplomacy or of giving policy advice, then the whole productivity framework doesn't really work. So I think that focusing at the organizational level is the right way to go, and then to try to, to draw some lessons to apply them to, to other sectors as well. And I'm just thinking about, we had a, a Finnish uh, statistician come and work with us for about six months looking at national productivity numbers in, in Finland. And really what he was explaining to me is that they would start with their national accounts information, but the, the work of mapping that to a real understanding of the administrative processes and data at the agency and ministry level was quite painstaking and, and and, but it was crucial to really understanding how uh, productivity could be improved uh, at the organizational level. So there's, there's quite a bit of work to be done there. And just so that people don't go away saying, well, you know, there's no hope for, for international comparison of productivity, um, the OECD spent four years working on its system of health accounts. And what that uh, allows us to do is it's a handbook. I was going to bring it with me, but it's about 550 pages. But it's comparison, country across country, of how do we standardize data coming out of health systems. Now, now that we have that, now countries actually have to start collecting the information using those guidelines. So this is a very long and slow process, which you have to be quite patient in order to have some robust information. But it's happening, uh, and I think that we'll, we're continuing to fight that good fight. And the second area that I wanted to talk about was uh, with regard to the incentives. And I think <clears throat> it's always very easy to say, here are all the things that were not covered by the book. Uh, uh, and so I, I don't want to, to belabor that point. But at the same time, I think that while Patrick uh, recognizes sort of the external, uh, in particular fiscal pressures that can create uh, a push for innovation, that oftentimes understanding the actors and the institutional relationships between those actors is quite important to see whether or not those pressures take hold. And what I mean there is, for example, uh, Ministries of finance tend to be the ones that are the most interested in trying to achieve efficiency gains or value for money. And yet, if they're standing there saying, we are going to harvest any uh, potential efficiencies that organizations are able to, to offer up, then obviously the incentive to, 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 to provide those efficiencies or to declare them is, is, is zero to nil. Uh, so the, the types of processes that Ministries of finance have put in place be those uh, spending reviews, or automatic productivity cuts, or the types of dialogue that they have in determining fiscal consolidation measures with ministries are quite important in terms of creating those incentives uh, to offer up innovations. And some of the work that we've done in the health sector at the OECD shows that ministries of health are not waiting for uh, ministries of finance to come and say, oh, you know, wake up, you need to innovate. They're thinking about it already, but they're also thinking about this as a strategy for them to reallocate internally uh, to pay for, uh, to find savings in one area, to pay for uh, uh, investments in another. So once they start interacting with ministries of finance, uh, the, as I said, that, that incentive to offer those up changes completely. And so how do you create that balance 
where some of the, some of the savings can be reinvested within the organization. Um, the, I think from a public management perspective, we're also seeing that how information is being used for decision-making uh, makes a big difference as well. We're seeing a growing disenchantment, for example, with performance budgeting, because we realize that at the end of the day, people are, are human and they find ways to get around systems, no matter how clever they are in terms of trying to track their performance. So I think that having information on both uh, efficiency and effectiveness is quite important, but not in this one-to-one, you know, uh, each uh, increment of performance improvement leads to greater uh, uh, appropriations to an organization. We now know that that doesn't really work. However, uh, using that information to provide the political accountability to the government of the day, the social accountability through budget transparency, other transparency to, to the society, and then also administrative accountability in terms of uh, finding uh, insights into the, or- the management of organizations to improve the management. Those are all important uses of uh, uh, the productivity data. And I think I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to go very quickly on my third point, which is that uh, scale matters. So the, the Australian National Audit Office took a look at the impact of its um, uh, automatic pro- productivity cuts, and it found that small organizations did not have the wherewithal to be able to improve productivity to, uh, to meet the, the cuts, and that therefore you need to have a larger or at least functional cooperation across organizations in order both to get the scale, the capability, uh, to, to do something, uh, uh, to operate on a larger uh, scale to achieve efficiencies, and that therefore the organizational context in which these types of fiscal pressures are taking place is, is quite important uh, in terms of the ability of organizations to respond to, to those pressures. Secondly, I think the, the, the one thing I was very surprised, you know, coming from a, a, a university is that there wasn't that much uh, emphasis on the, the, the role of evaluation uh, as in part of the learning organizations, and that the use of indicators to identify the areas where drill downs were needed, both in, in terms of evaluation, uh, in terms of case studies, to be able to draw information uh, and, to, and to provide recommendations, I think is quite important to provide that feedback loop of continuous improvement. And then finally, uh, at the international level, I think, as Patrick had mentioned at the beginning, uh, we do think that there are, uh, there is learning that can be done across countries. It's quite difficult because context is quite different. As I mentioned, cultures are quite different. Uh, but the OECD Observatory for Public Sector Innovation is uh, trying to, to take some early steps in terms of collecting information across countries. Uh, making that information available to practitioners and then trying to produce the dialogue that takes place where people are not just looking at, you know, the hot new thing that's happening in, uh, in Canada or in the United States, but also saying, you know, in terms of an international community of practitioners, how are people who are facing the same challenges that I have in my daily work, how are they... Uh, approaching it in a different context. And perhaps that might be one of the first steps to uh, improving uh, how, we, how we are improving productivity. Thank you. So thank you very much to our panel, and now it's going to be your turn.
There are um, going to be microphones, so please wait for the microphone because we hope in a couple of days the podcast will be up and we need that to record what everybody's saying. I am going to invite uh, Jane to make the first comment. Jane, you need the mic. <laughs> Didn't even follow the own instructions. Um, there are some groups, uh, women and ethnic minorities, who are significant consumers of public services and therefore very concerned about their quality and effectiveness. And their voices aren't always very well represented. I think a lot of groups have to take responsibility for that. I organised this event and, and the panel isn't as representative as, as I would have liked. And also universities, I mean disciplines like political science ask the panel what they thought could be done to ensure those voices are more represented in discussions around politics. Can I see if anybody else wants to ask a question on this theme? Okay, well, let me just... I'll get the panel to reply to that one in particular, and then we'll come back for more general questions. Another one here on, on this particular issue. Thank you. Hello, um, my name is Siobhan Coughlin. I work at the LGA. I guess I would take Jane's point a step further in terms of how well we're engaging with customers, the citizen, the user of these services, um, in order to make uh, the right decisions around productivity. Thank you. Anybody else on this? It's more in line with the, the, um, Siobhan's comment, which is, when you're looking at productivity, do you look at those who are engaged with the productivity from an, an organisational point of view or those using the services? And do you take into account satisfaction with those services? Okay, thank you. So, come to the panel. Um, I think everybody might want to chip in on that one. But, Patrick, why don't you start? Okay. Well, on um, uh, representativeness of, of different groups, I mean, I, I certainly think it's the case that, uh, you know, this panel is not gender neutral, and it should have been. Uh, certainly, I think in the LSE as a whole, we need to make a big push towards uh, getting getting to uh, more representative panels than we have done. And, and we, you know, it is actually feasible to do this. We've done that in many areas of uh, other parts of our work. So, I particularly am very proud of one blog that I. Uh, I'm an editor of which, which has managed to get to a, a very full representation of uh, men and women, very equal representation. I think when we come to public services productivity, it's very important to recognise that there are some systematic differences between different kinds of agencies. Most, uh, uh, most decentralised delivery agencies are... Um, uh, predominantly staffed by women in the healthcare, education, and social work sectors. And then there are some others with uh, a male-orientated uh, balance. When you get to the central government level, you tend to find that uh, it's, it's very related to rank, so that uh, the proportion of, of public servants that are a male tends to rise as you get towards the top of organizations. And I think what that tends to do is to create walls and barriers between people who are pushing for, you know, top-level reforms, uh, they often push for these reforms in a way that's not very, you know, diversity-orientated, that, that uh, doesn't take account of the situation of, of grassroots workers and uh, employees. And that, that tends to uh, encourage employees to resist productivity changes, and it's perfectly rational for people to do that. 
So if you really want public sector productivity to grow, you actually need to work very hard at, at uh, creating, I think, more gender-neutral uh, kind of agencies and, and cultures in agencies. That would be part and parcel of moving towards you know, uh, better productivity because it would be reducing the, the kind of you know, resistance to change and then the management proposing changes that are not properly worked through that often goes on at the moment. So I do think these issues are very important, and I also think uh, ethnic group representation inside public services is very important for whether or not you're going to get productivity changes. But I think in some other countries in the world, these issues are even more developed than they are in the, in the UK. So it's always going to be a sensitive thing to say public sector productivity needs to improve. A lot of people will code that as being you know, everybody in the public sector needs to work a lot harder and their life needs to get a lot grimmer and uh, conditions need to get a lot worse and pay needs to be suppressed and jobs need to be cut. Now, that's not what we're saying in the book. And uh, Barry mentioned the big table at the back of the book, which has got a lot of specific suggestions as to you know, ways in which uh, the public sector can be a nice place to work, but it can be a more productive You've probably got a lot of um, experience on this issue. What do you think about it? Um, yes, I'm in a place where if Jamaica play Nigeria in football, it's a big deal. It's a bigger deal than anything else, really. Uh, so you have to know your ethnography of your place and of the place, uh, the people that you're uh, leading. I think whether it's about providing services or delivering services or framing discussions, you've got to have as diverse a group as possible. And I think there's this, the issue uh, is that we're actually paid. I'm very conscious that you know, my salary is paid by everyone. Um, uh, everyone uh, that works in the public sector, they're, they're not working for groups of people. Or for, they're neither are they chasing high-value people. So when I talk about demand management, we're not trying to find high-value people to sell them more stuff. We're actually trying to work out, actually, who needs, who needs this most um, are we delivering right to the uh, right most effectively to the people that need it most, or are there distortions in how we're designing the service? Are we involving the people that are receiving services because you know they they know more about the service and their needs than actually the people providing it. Um, so I think whether it's in design of the service itself or designing of the you know the organisation. Um, or framing the political choices or making the political choices I think you need diversity, you need to frame it properly. You're nodding vigorously Joe do you want to have anything to add? Well I, mean, I think that's right, I, I mean I think the way I get into this is uh, to think quite hard about what we mean, what we should really be meaning when we're talking about public service output and it isn't I think uh, some kind of commodity uh, where you just happen to produce it that same commodity a bit more efficiently that isn't productivity. And the reason I think that's, that's got to be right is that what I think output is really about is value and value added. And what is it that users actually value? Then it seems to me you get into, first of all, being clear what people want. Uh, secondly, not providing things which, however clever and convenient, are not what people want, have not got value in that sense. Um, uh, uh, and that's why it seems to me that these points that the lady from the LGA raised... Uh, are important and part of that is actually meeting the needs of all of our society uh, balancing that up against what is, is affordable 
That is part of me, for me, that is, if you take the view that value added is what this output is really about, then that's what has to go into the productivity equation. Producing output that nobody wants uh, or doesn't meet need is actually not really very productive. So I, I think that, first of all, in, at the beginning of the book, there's a very good discussion about the differences between the public and the private sector. And one of those key differences is that the public sector has a universal service mandate. And so that means it's not just sort of the, the best return on investment, it's everyone. And that includes women, that includes disabled people, you know, across the, the border. And so I think that's quite important and that uh, you have to take, you know, you, you can't let your service delivery decisions be driven by productivity when you have that type of a mandate. Secondly, uh, within the OECD, we, we have had this uh, gender mainstreaming initiative, which has, I've learned a lot from it, because at the beginning, you know, for people who are less familiar with these types of initiatives, you think, okay, well, then how many recipients are women and how many recipients are men? And it, in fact, it's not like that at all. It's really trying to understand the service better in order to understand the differences, the gender differences that have an impact on the effectiveness of the service delivery. And so, uh, you know, one example that was given was that uh, for a training program in India was that if uh, young, if you give young men th this training for building solar panels on houses, that they take the degree and they go to the city and they get jobs. But if you give it to grandmothers in those cities, that they stay in the communities and they reinvest those skills into doing, meeting the, the program objectives, which is to install solar panels in, in, the, in the, the, the roofs of the, the, the buildings. So there, I think it's something, or it's, it's not about gender, it's about insight into the, the, the program and the community and driving that information in order to be more effective. So I think that's something that everyone should, should share as a goal. Um, I'll do the thing of taking questions in groups of three or four. So this gentleman first. Just wait for the microphone, please. And then after that, the gentleman at the end of the row there. It's William Heath from, from Minex. So the point's been raised that you've sort of done the easy part, hard enough as it was. You've, you've measured the organisation-centric, the supply-side productivity, but that doesn't take into account how much time do people spend waiting in call centres, how much time do they spend going to offices, how much hassle do they incur, how effective is it, how good the, the services really are. My question is really about the systems that underpin that. You've made the point that the big investment in EDS, HP systems in those big departments paid a dividend. Isn't there a far bigger dividend ready to come when you've got infrastructure on the side of the individual? When individuals connecting to public services, whether it's Lewisham or the NHS or DWP, when they can prove their own credentials and trustworthiness, when they can express their preferences, when they can clean up their data, they've got a digital letterbox, but when you've got that information logistics on both sides, you're going to get orders of magnitude improvement in productivity. So my question is, will you do your next book on that, please? <laughs> Thank you. Um, next to the gentleman back there at the end of the row. At the back, yeah. And then I'll come back to the front. Thank you, Chair. Um, productivity. I don't think there's anyone in this room or elsewhere that would disagree that um, a healthy, well-educated population is an asset. So my question is, how do you persuade other people, um, possibly highly paid, to recognize... Um, that, that, that that's for some sort of benefit because otherwise they turn around and say oh well you want education get it elsewhere you want health care get it elsewhere how do you persuade other people 
Thank you. Um, question at the front here. And then after that, I'll do one more, and then we'll come back for another batch later. Patrick, at the outset, thought that the big state solution was not the way ahead for progress. That it was in, it really prevented productivity. And we heard from Barry about the importance of uh, contact with the consumers and the users. And we've heard about the need to draw on the insights and energy of the uh, providers, <coughs> the workers within these different services. Now, how then, if we believe in all that, are we to break the consensus, the social democratic consensus that seems to affect all parties at the national level, that everybody should have the same sort of standards everywhere, that there should be a uniformity of standards to achieve equality. How can we break the grip of that attitude that is, from what our speakers tell us, holding back public service productivity? Thank you very much. I will take one more in this batch, and there's a gentleman there waving from the back. Thank you. Hi. Hi, my name is Daniel Krupp, and I work in the internet and uh, sort of policy space. My question is about how you measure ICT productivity, because if, if I'm recalling correctly, and I'm sorry if I'm not, your data shows basically a positive relationship between more ICT spending and greater productivity. My question is, isn't it the case in an age of free software, free, you know, Skype, um, open source software, that you might very well be missing a huge trick here because, as you know from the NHS, <laughs> sort of their experience with big IT projects, they can often be exceptionally expensive and exceptionally bad. And you can use Skype to communicate for free by video with people all around the world. So my question is, how, if all, did you take that into account? And if not, can you be more specific in analyzing precisely what might be going on beneath that spend data that you have for ICT? Thanks. So we've got, um, what about user-based innovation, if I can do that shorthand? Um, what happens when you've got disagreement about the purposes of public services? How do you crack the, the tyranny of the postcode lottery, the presumption that everybody should be the same? And is spending the right way to measure ICT as an input, I think? So I think uh, panel members take what you like out of those, <laughs> reply to whichever bit you prefer. So Patrick, you first. Well, maybe I could just pick two, two out of those, those set to respond to. The first was William Heath's point about uh, identification. It is the case that uh, British government, uh, IT-based and electronic services and now digital services, <laughs> have been constrained for years, not just years but decades, by absolutely avoidable difficulties in, in, in uh, getting citizens to identify themselves to government electronically. I don't know how many of you have filled in a, a government, uh, an income tax form, but you probably had, have had dealings with the government gateway, one of the worst bits of our uh, IT equipment. Uh, and in many, many cases, you can see that uh, agencies have held off from... Uh, doing something that they could have done digitally for at least a decade, in some cases for 15 years, because they haven't been able to electronically identify people. 
Um, and often they will do that when they're actually meeting these same people. So the DWP, for a long time, uh, if you wanted to register as a job seeker, so they, they, they would make you phone up and you would ha talk to somebody for half an hour, 40 minutes on the phone, and then you'd have to turn up at a job center. But you weren't allowed to apply electronically because we couldn't be sure who you were. But they, they would all turn up at the job center anyway. Uh, similarly, over the years, uh, the Passport Agency has been one of the slowest digital change agencies. You've probably all filled in these terrible passport forms that has to be photographed, and if your signature goes over, this or that. You know, that's because they're using a, a kind of 1980s technology called optical character uh, reading. When they could have had you type it out, send it in, uh, then call you in for an interview, which in many cases you're, you're having to do now anyway. So, you know, this has been a problem even when governments are meeting these people and talking to them, they haven't been able to solve the ID problem. And I absolutely agree with William, this is a huge area. And in those countries which have sorted out, like Sweden, which is relatively easy to do and straightforward, uh, you know, public services are immeasurably better. If you're in Sweden, for example, they will, tax agency will collect all your income for you. You don't have to keep, you know, a, a box file full of all your receipts and then fill in the tax form. They will send you a text message the day after the end of the tax year, and if you agree with their rating, you can pay it by credit card and have done with it the same day. Now, that's great for actually collecting the money. We are 20 years off doing that in the UK. That's a ridiculous amount of lag to be behind. So uh, the other point uh, that I would respond to was Daniel's point about uh, measuring ICT productivity by spending. Yes, it's a very, very bad way of measuring ICT uh, effort uh, and the competence of ICT effort, especially nowadays. Uh, but for the big transactional services that we were looking at, it's a reasonable proxy but what it isn't a reasonable proxy is anymore. You can't, it is the case that uh, government is addicted to um, very expensive ways of doing things um, and very expensive IT. And political power in IT departments and divisions tends to go where the money is. Uh, even where, um, you know, free cost or low cost uh, alternatives are available. And, and it's also the case that Modern digital development is mainly, you know, to do with internet and social media and other kinds of expertise, where cost is not really so terribly important. You can get a lot of stuff done very, very cheaply indeed. So certainly if we were doing this next 10 years, we wouldn't be able to use ICT spending, even in those services that we have been using. That's one of the things I like doing. I was on a tour of Australia the other, uh, uh, other year, and uh, you would say to conferences of civil servants. How many of you are using Skype? And maybe half the audience in your personal life. Half the audience would put their hand up and then would say, how many of you are using Skype in your official business? 300 people in the room, not one hand would go up. And this would be in places like Western Australia where they have huge distances, where they have uh, 40 or 50 different Aboriginal languages where interpreting services are incredibly hard to do. But they still wouldn't use Skype because it wasn't secure enough or there was some hangover or something. Stop them doing it. So two very sharp questions on very sharp topics. Let's reverse the order. Edwin, you can go next. Well, Pick up whatever you like. With regard to the, the issue on standards, I think that um, 
Part of the, the issue that we've seen, especially with agentification in, in OECD countries, is that uh, by giving agencies the flexibility to try to, to meet their mandates, we are hoping that there would be greater innovation in order to, to deliver and therefore improve productivity. Instead, what we often found is that they would maintain the sort of uh, or, or the, the the rigid administrative rules about salary, about recruitment. Those things they would maintain, and then they would actually apply their flexibility to broadening their mandate in order to try to do more and more and more. So I think that now, perhaps one of the ways to introduce the greater flexibility is is through the use of block grants, through the use of uh, providing funds to local communities so that they can uh, try to combine flows in different ways in order to, to provide services that are more adapted to the local needs. An important issue there, and we, we looked at this in Finland with their um, basic services program, is that they, they did exactly that. So they said, we're going to give you your education funding, your health funding, your social service funding, and it's all yours, and you can do with it as you please. And in fact, the, 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 especially the small local municipalities, they continued to work as they had before under very rigid regulatory frameworks because they didn't know any better. So how do we provide that additional impetus so that they can break out of those, those uh, regulatory uh, uh, rigidities? Thank you. Joe, anything you want to add? Just two very, very quick points, if I might. Uh, first of all, uh, I'm certainly not an expert on this, but in terms of the correlation between IT spend and uh, uh, perceived uh, productivity growth, it, it didn't sort of surprise me that the relationship existed. And part of the reason I say that is I think there's a growing body of evidence that equally, if you look at private sector bodies using the micro data, for example, then again, you get this very clear correlation between successful and productive uh, private sector enterprises and their degree of IT spend. Now, my guess is that that may be slightly a false correlation in the sense it may be actually that productive go-ahead enterprises both in the public and the private sector also tend to spend uh, a degree of money on IT. They take it seriously. Whether they spend it wisely or not, I think is another question, but I think there is a clear correlation between IT spend and productivity in both public and private sectors. And getting to the bottom of that, I think, is quite, quite interesting. Uh, the other point that came to mind, I think, was the point that you made about um, uh, the proposition that a low-productivity, large public sector uh, can be burdensome. It seems to me part of the issue here is that not only do public services, the public sector, affect that 22 24% of the economy directly, they also condition the way the rest of the economy, and indeed us as citizens and consumers, are able to benefit or otherwise. So my guess is that the killer is when you have a low productivity, large public sector, which is barely providing those, those services that the rest of us need, the rest of the economy needs, but doing it in an expensive way and preempting a lot of the national resources in the process. So my guess is that that's really what's at the heart of... Um, finding that, that, that Patrick uh, drew attention to. And for me, the thing to bring out is that these public services have a life beyond their direct impact. They do actually condition the rest of our, uh, rest of the economy and indeed the rest of our society. Barry. Yeah, I, um, a couple of things, really. The, I've, um, only a, f- a few months ago, I did a review of Cornwall and its uh, Cornwall Council. And uh, it's a long way from Catford, Cornwall. <laughs> Um, and it's very different. 
And I think it's, it's odd, isn't it, that if you think of different places like Cornwall, Camden, Coventry, why would we expect, um, I don't know, pharmacists or um, uh, shops to be the same and accessibly the same? Why would we expect public services to be the same? Well, actually, they're not. The issue is how much of the variance arises because of uh, incompetent management or incompetent leadership or poor, uh, poor organisational performance. Um, and I think that we've got to be much more grown up about variation and diversity, much more grown up about it, rather than assuming a standardised service and assuming that public services are about minimum standards because they just drive to the minimum, in my view. That's what it results in. Um, now, I actually started work in computerising housing departments and social care departments, uh, operational systems. I remember doing a mortgage system on a Commodore PET years ago. <laughs> um, uh, and it's, it's much easier in local authorities because you're distributing the cost and the risk. So if you've got hundreds of different authorities doing things, you're distributing the cost and the risk. When you're uh, computerising and issues about you know, HMRC or uh, DWP, you're centralising the cost and the risk. Um, what a surprise. You know, I mean, 80% of everything goes wrong, in my experience, including implementing computer systems. There's no more likely to go wrong than everything else. 80% of everything in your life will go wrong. You learn from it quickly and move on. The trouble is when you centralise cost and risk, you're locked into the failure, I'm afraid. Edwin wants to make another point, and I then we'll come back for another batch of questions. I just wanted to add the flip side to, to Patrick's corollary that uh, large governments uh, that are inefficient uh, cannot uh, raise or reduce inequality, but large governments that are efficient uh, can very productively provide public services. And so there is actually no correlation between size of government and fiscal sustainability, for example. And even The Economist made that point with regard to its survey on the Nordic countries recently. Thank you. Question over here. And then one in the middle. Dan Sheldon from Methods. Um, just to come back to the theme of technology, uh, there seems to be a lot of hope pinned on the kind of second wave of digital services uh, to be able to provide significant productivity savings for, for governments. I think the Cabinet Office uh, estimates, I think, $7.5 billion um, per annum in savings uh, just through the kind of low-hanging fruit. That's the high transactional volume services and digitizing those. And they also indicate that perhaps this second wave of digital might uh, prompt a wider re redesign of organizations around, around digital. Does the panel share this optimism and how would you avoid what Patrick alluded to earlier, which is the kind of hostage situation that we've had in the past between um, governments, which tends to have low levels of digital innovation and also quite a wide skills gap when it comes to technology, traditionally, and the private sector, who have operate, operate, operated quite a monopolistic uh, kind of system for the past few years when it comes to IT. Thank you. One in the middle here. Hi, my name is Pat Willerton. I'm from the School of Government and Public Policy at the University of Arizona in the U.S. Um, my question is 
to the authors, uh, Professor Dunleavy and Dr. Carrera, uh, regarding the cross-national implications of the study. As I understand your work, it's focused on the UK. Um, perhaps, given where I'm from, I'm really taken, let me say, I'm very taken by the title of your book, which I think, as you sell it in the United States, will be quite provocative, because I think, as you know, we do not associate productivity with the government uh, at all. And, in fact, I, I was thinking about how I would title this book, Were I an American Author?, um, as a t in a typical U.S. thinking, it would be um, probably not growing the productivity, but managing the burden of government services. And so my question is, in a sense, not to focus particularly on the United States, but perhaps looking at other countries, what, what are the implications that maybe people elsewhere can take from your study? Um, uh, I think in particular, uh, right now, when we, all countries are, are, are obviously struggling with some of these issues. Um, and I, I just have the sense, listening to the presentation, when we have a practitioner, when we have a, an official from a borough of London and, and, you know, embracing your study, again, I'm not accustomed to this. I mean, I'm accustomed to officials uh, being very apologetic. I mean, even when they get involved in these things and they want to uh, promote these things, they do so apologetically. So clearly, I understand I'm in a country with a different mindset. But at the same time, I want to benefit from the study. So I, I'd like, I'm hoping... Thank you. I get to take one last question here, except I would like to ask if any other women in the room who've been quiet since the first round of questions would like to ask one. No? Okay. Then. Okay, thank you. Peter came from Central Government. Um, two observations. Really, the first is whether if the data was brought up to date reflecting events of the last three or four years, whether you'd see quite a different picture, because at a time when private sector productivity has been falling, um, I suspect we'll have seen public sector product rising as inputs. Numbers have fallen quite sharply. Pay's been restrained quite sharply. And yet, my experience is that outputs are largely being maintained. There's a question of whether that's sustainable, but that's a picture of recent developments. I'd be interested observation on that. And the second is, I think the thing that links both the public and private sector historically is low productivity. And I think, to me, there's a real cultural issue that links the two, it's not so much about levels of IT in comparison, it's more about the extent to which we value good and effective management and, and the extent to which we're getting the value from uh, the workforce in, in, uh, and, and creating the value through that. So perhaps by comparison with other countries, that's the area where, where we should be focused. Thank you. I know there are a couple of other hands, but we're almost out of time, and we can carry on the conversation over uh, the reception anyway. So let me turn first to the panel, see if there are any quick comments on those, and then let Patrick have the last word. Barry. Um, well, actually, I know David Cavazos, which is, who's the uh, city manager for Phoenix, and um, uh, I think he's a very good example of uh, effective management. It's a city management authority. Um, it's a, you know... I, when we started going into the crash in the UK, I studied American cities because they, they had to essentially cut their uh, budgets two years before the UK authorities because we were essentially cushioned because they were too reliant, over-reliant on business rates. We're going to become reliant on business rates. So we're being given fallen knives in the UK uh, and told this is a lifeline. Um, uh, but uh, I do think there's some really good examples uh, in the States of very good productivity. But I, do, I think that it, where it focuses on is single-purpose agencies in the main. 
whether that's in local government or in other areas. There's lots of single-purpose agencies, whereas in the UK there's much more general-purpose agencies where there's less productivity because the cost of coordination and the um, problems that occur from coordinating lots of different specialties. Quick reaction from you, Joe. Oh, very quick. Um, first of all, the United States, I can barely suppress observing that while, as Patrick pointed out, for a long time most of the rest of the world had an outputs equals inputs uh, convention, so productivity never changed, for large parts of the US national accounts, I think no longer, but for a long time, they had a convention that inputs equaled zero. In other words, there was no output from the input whatsoever, and by definition, any government spending was, was waste. Uh, so that doesn't really fit in. I think they've changed from that, by the way. But, um, just on Peter Kane's point about um, uh, the latest information we have on productivity in the public sector has been pretty flat uh, for areas like the health service, for example, or schools. Uh, so flat as a pancake, I think, would be the way I would say it. That is, of course, different from the private sector, where, as you say, in the UK we've had this rather sharp uh, fall in productivity over, over last year's. Uh, but I do rather agree that, in particular, it's a bit of what I was trying to say before, the, the uh, correlation between IT spend and um, uh, productivity may not be a direct one. It may simply be a symptom of those wise foreseeing managers happen to do that kind of thing, in which case it would not be a good policy prescription to say all you have to do is get productivity is to spend lots of money on IT. To be a sort of certain kind of manager, good manager to do that in the first place. Thanks, Joe. Edwin. Um, <clears throat> with regard to the question on digital services, I think that uh, one of the things I liked very much in the book was uh, not only this uh, raising the, the need for uh, competitive, competitiveness uh, of service delivery within government, but also uh, recognizing that sometimes you need a little bit of slack. Uh, so that so that you can have c competition, and I think that one of the problems with digital service delivery estimates is oftentimes it 's about cutting out all the slack so that we have a single provider, and yet the track record of government of picking winners is not so high, so I think that while there is certainly uh, low hanging fruit to be had, uh, perhaps we should take a, a, a medium uh, uh, estimate of savings rather than uh, an optimal estimate of savings and then uh, Rather than looking at what the, the U.S. can learn from the, the U.K., I think what a question that all countries can learn in the current uh, crisis uh, or is that uh, organizations can innovate if they have a bit of certainty. So if they know that there is going to be a reduction in their resources and that they can plan and try to achieve those. When they're in a context of complete fiscal chaos, it makes it very difficult to get into a defensive posture and trying to expect any improvements in productivity, I think, uh, is pretty much wishful thinking. So, Patrick, you get the last word, bearing in mind that you are the only person between us and the reception. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that certainly incentivizes me greatly. Uh, I hope that the book will be, you know... Uh, uh, applicable to the USA. There's a lot of US literature in there. There's a lot of US productivity studies that we draw on, particularly some very interesting studies of US police services and so on. The, uh, in, in most of my other work, uh, my last book had a seven-country study, included the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, 
Japan and the Netherlands, and most of my papers are cross-national. So I, I hope that this, this, you know, that, that, that this book has a lot uh, of, of, of resonance for particularly big U.S. Uh, public services like IRS and like the Social Security Agency, which I've visited many times and which are always full of fascinating insights and, and, and so on. So this, how do you run very big national-level agencies? The U.S. has some of the biggest in the world, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, the record has been very critical from U.S. politicians and U.S. public, but uh, when you're running... You know, services at a scale for 300 million people, that probably is the, you know, is a, is a gargantuan task. Um, and there's a lot to be learned from it. On Dan's point about the second wave of digital services, let me just refer you to my uh, blog, of, <laughs> the blog that Leandro and I did uh, on, on Monday, which is called The Rise of a Robot State, question mark, uh, which runs through some of the very extensive, uh, you know, potential for fully automating, I mean zero-touch technology automating uh, government services. And the, the, the really tricky thing for government really is to, is, to, is to do that properly without making it a kind of Ryanair, you know, we hate you kind of provision. Uh, oh, dear, that's recorded. Uh, but there's a huge potential, and it's not going to get less. It's going to get more and more. Um, Finally, on uh, Peter's point about central government productivity, what is the current picture? Well, we've got very mixed signals, really, from the public sector. So the government has been all around the public sector saying, top managers, you're paid way more than the prime minister, give me the money back. It's instituted a three-year pay freeze, which creates what we call the Swiss cheese problem, where all the talented people leave and all the people who can't move stay. On the whole, that tends to produce not very committed workers also, uh, and there will anyway be a catch-up pay settlement. So it's not a sustainable increase. And if you look back through the record, there are, in, in all the chapters that cover central government, you will find peaks. Uh, there were peaks under previous conservative administrations. There was a peak in 1995 to 97. It's completely unsustainable because it's not grounded in you know, the real organic processes. So flat rate, you know, wage cuts and wage freezes, they, they make your figures look good for a year and then they go away again. Um, and uh, often they create efficiency-reducing and efficiency-impairing changes as well. So, you know, there is no substitute for actually getting down to the organic job of improving and sustaining government productivity in each individual agency. And that's also, I might just say, why mandatory efficiency dividends are what Edwin called automatic productivity, never works. That just means I'm going to take 3% off you at the end of the year. It doesn't, doesn't have any effect on productivity. It just makes the finance ministry feel better. <laughs> on that note, um, congratulations to Patrick and Leandro on their book, which is terrific. And um, thank you to all of you for coming along. It's been a great series of questions, and I know that there are others we didn't get to, so I hope we can carry on the conversation in a little while over drinks. And finally, please would you join me in um, thanking the panel and Patrick in, in the usual way. <laughs>